Welcome to the Tri-Valley Parenting Podcast. We exist to educate and empower parents of teenagers so that families can thrive. Here's your host, Anthony McLeod. I remember a few years back when Laura and I, we were looking for a house and uh, we were going to a bunch of different houses with our real estate agent looking for for a place that we could purchase, a place that we could buy. And, you know, we, we were young, still are young, but we were young, really young back then and um, uh, needed something that was like right in our price range that was just checked all the boxes. And uh, I remember walking into one place in particular and as I walked through the doors, of this house. It was perfect. It felt perfect. It was two bedrooms. It was two bathrooms. It was exactly what we were looking for in the perfect neighborhood that we could totally see ourselves in. And as we're walking out of this house, I remember looking over the door. There was a crack from the ceiling to the top ridge of the door. And that crack revealed an issue in the foundation. As I tried to open up that door, actually, (laughs) I, I opened it up and it hit the top of the floor and wouldn't open because the foundation was actually tilted. And I think for a lot of us, when we look at our kids, we're afraid of that very thing happening to them when it comes to their faith. I think for a lot of us, we think that there's a crack in their foundation or we're worried that there's a crack in their foundation or an issue in their foundation in their faith. Because faith is built on a belief and a trust in the truth of the Bible and the stories that are found in them. And I think for a lot of us, it's hard to, when we look at our kids, it's, it's hard for us to believe that they really believe this stuff. And so today I want to talk about um, getting your students' faith college ready, shoring up that foundation, fixing the cracks, the holes, the issues that they might have in their faith. And I think for a lot of parents, there's a fear. There's a fear that when your kids go off to college that they're going to ditch their faith, which is actually the reality of a lot of parents because if you look at the numbers, if you look at the statistics, there's a ton of kids that leave their faith. So what does that mean? What do we have to do? How do we help them? Uh, That's the issue that we're going to be tackling today. And I think... um, this whole God's Not Dead movement, the the movie, I think it's for me personally, it's it's really kind of a cheesy part of our Christian culture that that honestly, like when I look at it, I kind of roll my eyes at. But I think that there's there's some nuggets of truth to it. It's this whole idea that your kids are going to go off to college and they're going to be evangelized by atheists. Um, and and there's a few reasons why I don't like that. I think it represents an us versus them mentality, and it really kind of propagates that whole idea that it's us against the world and we're really against the world and we have to defend our faith and we have to fight for what we believe in. Uh, And I don't think that that is the heart of Jesus. I think Jesus loves the world and he's for the world and he wants to see the world come to him. And so I think there's a lot more love and care um, than battling that that happens in the spiritual realm. I think God, he just loves and he cares for these people. And so he he battles for them in a, in a very different way and not the way that, that this movie maybe necessarily represents. But I think there's a lot of great things uh, about uh, what they do. Um, but I, I think in some ways it's a little bit simplistic. There's a lot more than atheism for your students to grapple with. There's a lot more than... Um, just a, a professor, actually, even for your students to grapple with. Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of the fear that will send them off to school and there's going to be this professor that that really pours into them this this thing that's that's false and that's against what 
Uh, you've been teaching them their whole lives. Um, but I think this actually misrepresents what's happening in our kids today. Uh, I think it's actually much more than that. Uh, so I don't want you to sound the alarms. I don't want you to freak out because God is in control. But I think there are three things that are battling for our kids when it comes to college. There are professors with differing worldviews, which I think God's Not Dead really represents. There are friends with differing worldviews. And I think that's a big one. I mean, there's a, you, your kids have a lot more friends than they do professors. Uh, and I think professors have a really weighty voice, but friends have a, a very weighty voice as well. And so there are friends with differing worldviews. But I think there's also temptations and newfound freedoms that kids really battle when it comes to uh, their faith in college because, you know, they've lived under your roof their whole life. And now all of a sudden they're on their own and there's all sorts of fun, tempting things for them to do. And they have all the freedom in the world. And so they end up making the wrong decisions. Now, I don't want to simplify this whole college and faith thing. I don't want to simplify it because I think it's really messy. It's complicated. And there's always exceptions to the rules. There are always those students that kind of break the norms. And so when I'm giving you an answer or when I'm offering you uh, some sort of uh, hope, I, I don't want to simplify it because really there are students that break the exception to the rules. But I do want to kind of give us a true north today. Uh, some direction that we can at least point our arrows in so we know we're at least traveling in the right direction, um, but knowing that there are unexpected turns, there's speed bumps, and there are exceptions to the rules. Uh, but I believe that if we if we really keep on this direction, that God will be faithful in the end. He is good, and he loves your kids. And so if you keep praying for them and you keep steering them in the right direction, then uh, I think he's faithful to do the rest. So here's here's what I want to look at today. Um, I really want to look at three convictions that your kids have to have before they leave your house to navigate this culture that I that I really see are, are huge issues. And I don't think a lot of parents are addressing them because I think they leave it up to their schools or their churches to address them. But it's got to be addressed in the home. It has to come from the home because you are the loudest voice in your kid's life. So three convictions that they need to be uh, ready for this culture and to navigate life on their own. Um, and then I want to look at three common questions that kids uh, are going to be struggling with when it comes to their faith that might throw uh, just throw them off. And, and so today we're going to dive into this. Uh, it's going to be, might be a little bit longer than usual. I'm going to try to keep it short and brief, but just know you can pause at any time and come back to it. Uh, so three convictions. Okay. Number one, I think that students really desperately need this conviction. The Bible is the authority for life. It is truth. And uh, I think this whole idea of biblical authority is really important for your kids. Because if they have this conviction that the Bible is the authority for life, it doesn't matter what the culture says to them. They're going to go back to their Bible and say, well, what does God say about this? So the Bible is authority for life. Uh, number two, Jesus loves truth and evidence. He isn't afraid of tough questions. John chapter five, verse 36, it says this, but I have greater a greater witness than John. Now, what is a witness? A witness is somebody in a courtroom testifying to the truth of something. So he's saying, I've got a greater witness. He says, it's my teachings and my miracles. His miracles are a witness. And then it says, the father gave me these works to accomplish 
uh, and they prove that he sent me. So it shows like Jesus is, he's all about evidence. He's trying to show us like, hey, look, I'm real. And here's how you know I'm real. I've done miracles. Look at my teachings. Look at my miracles. They show that I'm from God and they prove that he sent me. Jesus loves evidence and he's not afraid of tough questions. He is all about the truth. And and that's why he's called the way, the truth, and the life because he loves truth. And then I think the third conviction that they have to uh, to um, be culturally ready is uh, just this conviction that there are great answers for every tough question. Because that's what I found in my own life. I've had a lot of tough questions. And to tell you the truth, there's a lot of really, really great tough questions out there. Uh, you think about Christianity. Man, it is. it feels kind of weird when you think about it, let's, let's just be honest. Like as Christians, let's just take a step back and look at what we believe. We believe that there is an eternal God that made all of this. Now the, (laughs) the earth itself is kind of weird. You know, this floating ball out in the middle of space, like orbiting around the sun. Like that's, that's a weird concept in itself. So, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of weird things out there, but we believe that, that God created this. Um, that he loves people, and that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross. And we believe that he died and he rose again. That's kind of a crazy, it's kind of a crazy thought and a crazy thing to believe. Um, but when you really look at it, you look at the evidence, like, there, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a ton of evidence for it. So I, I get why why there's tough questions, because it's kind of a, it's a crazy thing to believe. But when you look at the evidence for it, and it really feels to me, as I look at the evidence, it feels very, very, very overwhelming. And so just I, if you can just pour this into your kid, there are great answers for every tough question. And you've got a question. You may hear something that you're like, wow, that, that, sounds, that, that sounds right. Or that sounds, and it might be something that's different from their faith and it sounds right, and it seems right, or there's an objection to their faith that sounds right and seems right, but let them know, look, you may not have the answers, but the answers are out there, and they exist. Um, so I think that those are three very important things. The Bible is the authority for life. Jesus loves truth and evidence, and there are great answers for every tough question. Okay, so let's look at some questions that the kids are going to face, um, and these are not all of them, but I think that there's some of them, and you'll you'll see the cultural um, influence on some of these questions. So the first question is: Does God exist? Does God exist? Well, I think there is a one-word answer. Uh, it's causality, and obviously, this is a very complex issue. It's a complex thing to look at. Um, But for me, this was the answer that really did it. This was the answer that really helped me. Okay, so causality, it comes from like this idea of of a cause, like cause and effect, right? Um, So I look around this room and um, right now uh, I'm in my baby's room. Uh, So I have a dresser here and someone caused this dresser to come into being. And the idea is that everything that has a beginning has a cause. That's the idea of causality. So if this dresser uh, didn't exist and then all of a sudden came into existence, it had to have something that caused it. It does not randomly come into existence. Uh, so this dresser has a cause because it has a beginning. The chair that I'm sitting on had a cause. Some guy in a, in a workshop somewhere said, I'm going to make a chair. And then that chair came into existence because he caused it. 
There's always a cause for everything. Everything that we observe that has a beginning has a cause. So if you look at the universe and everything that was created, it must have a cause because what we know from science uh, and from the probably the most common understanding of how the universe came into existence, the Big Bang Theory, we know that the universe had a beginning. It had a point where it started. It once wasn't there, and then it was there. There once, there was a moment where there was no time, there was no space, and there was no matter. And in an instance, time, space, and matter all came into existence. That's what we see, and that's what's observable from science. So we need a cause because it had a beginning. It once wasn't there, and then it became. So we're looking for something that is outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter because none of these things existed. Well, what's outside of time? It's something that's eternal. What's outside of space? Um, something that's from another realm. And uh, what's outside of matter? Uh, something spiritual, something that doesn't, isn't made of matter. Uh, and, and obviously like these are just theories, but like that's something that really makes sense when you think about it, something outside of time, space, matter. Well, what does that point to? That points to an eternal God, a God that is outside of this universe. So we're looking for an eternal uncaused cause, something that wasn't caused itself, something that's outside of time and space and matter, and something that caused the world to come into existence. That's the only answer that, for me, that that did it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that uh, could could give you other answers, but for me, this seemed like the most reasonable answer. So does God exist? Causality. There it is. Uh, number two, um, a lot of people, I think especially in this culture, will say that Jesus is too exclusive. Uh, they ask questions like, aren't all faiths true in their own way? Don't all roads lead to the same God? Um, and, and I think this, you know, we live in a pluralistic society where a lot of people believe a lot of different things. So it's plural, meaning there's a lot of them. Uh, and I think we live in a society right now that wants to be welcoming and loving to everybody. And I like, I want to be welcoming and loving to everybody, but I think we, we go to the extreme, uh, to say that, uh, everyone's right, and that's what it means to be welcoming. That's that's not true, um, and not everyone can be right because that goes against the nature of truth. Um, just because something sounds good and seems true doesn't mean that it is, and so we actually have to look at the facts about religion uh, because not everyone can be right, and I'm going to show you why here in a second. So for me personally, and I think this is something that you might want to say to your kids about religion, I'm not concerned with what works. I'm concerned with what's true because there's a lot of things out there that are going to work. Um, there's a lot of people that believe way differing things than I do that are very happy and content and filled with joy and happiness in life. Uh, I think their foundation is uh, a little shaky and a little bit rocky, personally, uh, and I don't think that what they believe is true, but I'm sure that it makes them happy. So it's not really about what makes you happy, and it's not about what works. It's about what's true, because there's a lot of things that we can believe that'll make us happy. Um, and and one, one other thing that we have to understand is that every worldview is exclusive. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe because these people who are saying, oh, every, every religion is right. Every religion is true. There's a nugget of truth in everything. These people, they want to seem like they are the most inclusive. 
but in fact, they are just as exclusive as everyone else. Because that worldview says all roads lead to heaven. Um, every, everyone is, is true and is right in their own way. But what that excludes is the people that say that all roads don't lead to heaven and that not everyone is right, which is the majority of what the world believes. So in trying to be inclusive, they're actually exclusive as well. So there's no real way to be fully inclusive of every religion. Everyone makes a truth claim and at some point excludes everyone else. Exclusivity, it's, it's the reality of life. And just because we believe that someone is wrong doesn't mean that we're a bigot. And it doesn't mean that we can't treat them with love and respect and even learn from them. I'm not, personally, I'm not against anyone. I love everyone equally because that's how I believe that, that God feels about them. God loves them and he cares about them. No matter what they believe or where they're at or how far they seem to be from him, he loves them. And so I'm going to treat every single human being as someone who was created in the image of God and is loved by God. But I can be exclusive at the same time, and that's really important. Um, so let's look at this idea that um, every religion is true in its own way, because nothing can be true in its own way or for that person. Uh, there is truth, and there is false, and there's nothing in between, to tell you the truth. Um, and to believe differently would be violating the law of reason. But for some reason, this is the, the narrative that our culture has taken on. And it violates the law of non-contradiction. So let's look at how this plays out in um, two major religions. Let's look at Islam versus Christianity. Um, in Islam, uh, they believe that Jesus did not resurrect. Christianity believes that Jesus did resurrect from the dead. Okay, so we have two people claiming two differing things about the same topic. In fact, not even two differing things, two contradicting things about the same topic. So is Islam true for them and Christianity true for us, or is there really one truth? Well, if you look at the nature of truth, it would make sense that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. So let's look at it. Did Jesus rise from the dead, or did he not? Now, I personally, I'm going to go with um, the thing that is historically reliable, because if you look at Islam, Islam was founded, uh, I believe it was, you know, around 600 AD, um, and Christianity was founded right after Jesus died and resurrected and is based on history and eyewitness accounts. And so I'm not going to trust somebody's opinion of Jesus resurrecting who that when their religion was founded 600 years and what they were writing was actually written 600 years after Jesus died and rose again. That just doesn't make sense. So here's what I'm getting at. They all can't lead to the same God. Here's why. Because they differ wildly on the same topics. So either this God is very confused and this God doesn't know who he is and, and is saying all sorts of different things that, that are contradicting themselves, or the view that God uh, that all roads lead to God is false in a big way. And for me, that's what I tend to believe. I believe that this, this whole worldview is false in a big way. So how do I know that Jesus is God? Well, let's take a look at it. Um, because... Um, God, we, we've already kind of determined God exists, that not every God can be God. So how do we know that Jesus is that God? 
well, unlike many faiths, I believe that our faith is rooted in deep history and events that can either be disproven or verified. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, it actually is it's rooted and grounded in history. Um, Jesus lived and walked the earth and lived in a particular time period under a particular Roman emperor in a particular region of the world that has other written accounts. There are other writings about Jesus that confirm what the Bible says about him. And um, there's uh, accounts that are outside of the Bible that confirm all the events that happened during um, the time frame that Jesus lived in. Uh, And they confirm our account of history that we find in the Bible. So the Bible is actually based on history. It's not just uh, a teaching because you can live your life based on what's good teaching or you can live your life based on what is proven historically and proven evidentially, if that's even a word, and uh, is proven based on truth. So, um, So let's look at it. Is it truth? Jesus said that his miracles prove that God sent him. That's what he said. He said this in, um, oh, I believe it's John chapter 5. Uh, and I think I think we had already talked about it. He said that I have a greater witness than John, that my miracles prove that I uh, ex- existed and I was sent from God and that I was God. So if we can prove the resurrection, uh, the greatest of all of his miracles, then we can actually prove that he was God. So how do we know Jesus is God? He resurrected. So let's look at the resurrection. Okay, let's think about this. Most of the Gospels and the New Testament was written between 15 to 40 years after Christ's death. They weren't even written by Christ himself. They were written by other people around him. And, um, oh gosh, there's 27 different books of the New Testament. I'm trying to remember how many authors in the New Testament there were, but there's different authors, right? It's not just one person and their account. There's a bunch of different authors who wrote between 15 to 40 years after Christ's death. Okay, so this could not have been just Christian myth that came up about Jesus. And here's why. Myth and stories about Jesus, like this could be folklore, because uh, Jesus could have been a historical person, but then over the years, people made up this account that Jesus actually resurrected, resurrected from the dead. But if the Gospels and the New Testament writers wrote between 15 to 40 years after Christ's death, that's not long enough for a myth to develop because it was written within the lifetime of these eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus that lived during his lifetime. And so if there were stories that came out, the eyewitnesses would have raised their hand and said, hey, that's not correct. And in fact, the eyewitnesses were named. They were named. There were 30 historically verified people that were mentioned in the New Testament. 30 historically verified people. 30 people that actually live, that walk the earth, that were mentioned in the Bible. So uh, you think about this, and this is just New Testament. This isn't even Old Testament. You think about this. If there's 30 people that lived, that walked the earth, that were confirmed historical people that were written about in the Bible, who are you going to go to if you want to know the truth? You're going to go to those 30 people that were in there, and they were actual people. Okay, so... This is the Bible, but let's look at um, extra biblical text, things that are outside of the Bible. Okay, so within 150 years of Christ's life, there were 10 extra biblical writers that wrote about Jesus, 10 that were non-Christian writers. There were nine that wrote about Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor of that day, within 150 years of his life. 
So you look at this, this is 10, so 10 writers that were outside of the Bible and nine writers that were outside of the Bible that wrote about Tiberius Caesar. That's astounding to me that Jesus would get more press than even the Roman emperor of that time. And more people wrote about Jesus than the Roman emperor. And then you think about this. There were 33 Christian writers that wrote about Jesus within 150 years after his life. 33. So that's 43 to 10 if you look at, uh, or 43 to 9 when you look at um, these people that wrote about Jesus and wrote about the Roman emperor at the time. I mean, that's pretty overwhelming evidence. Uh, so there were other people. It's not just the Bible that, that talks about this testimony. So let's look at... Um, let's look at the, the top argument that, that I could see against the resurrection. So let's look at the comp- conspiracy idea. This is the idea that the disciples came together and made up this conspiracy about Jesus being risen from the dead. Uh, and these men came, came together and, and said, we're going to fool everybody and we're going to just say Jesus rose from the dead. So here's a few questions that I have that I, I want you to think about. Um, why didn't the Roman government just go and get a body, if that's true? And you look at Christianity. Christianity is growing rapidly. And I would imagine that Christianity is a is pretty um Christianity is is a pretty big threat to the Roman Empire during the time. Uh, and to the, the to the high priests at the time, the Jewish high priests, the people that actually crucified Jesus, they were a threat to these two groups of people. Why didn't these people just go and get a body? Because the gravesite was public knowledge. It like it was public knowledge. And I was just reading in John today about the um the death of Jesus and the burial of, of Jesus. It said that this gravesite was actually close to where Jesus was killed, this place called Golgotha, the place of I think it's the skull or something like that. That's what the the actual translation is and what it means. Okay, so you've got like a historically verified place, the skull, and you said there's a gravesite around the skull where Jesus was buried, and then there's eyewitnesses who would who would be able to find where that gravesite actually was. So I'm imagining that this gravesite was actually public knowledge, and you've got two groups of people that have uh, very good reason to come out and say, "Oh, you believe that Jesus resurrected? Well, let me let me just show you. Let's just go and dig up his body." But they didn't. Why not? Because there was no body there. There was no body in the tomb. He was gone. Now, here's, here's another uh, argument against this whole conspiracy idea. None of the eyewitnesses ever said that it was a conspiracy. Their whole life, they held out and said, there's, n- there's no conspiracy. They never said that, oh, we made it up, even when they had to like give up their lives for this. So think about this. 11 of the 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths, and even to their grave, they never gave up that this was a made-up story. Now, here's what I know. Men will die for a lie, but they won't die for what they know is a lie. A lot of people die for false things, but they don't die for things that they know are false. Like if you made up a lie, would you take it to your grave? And then think about what they what they did. Okay, John. John, the only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death, he was dipped in a vat of boiling hot oil. Boiling hot oil. And he got up out of that and he still did not deny his story. Peter was crucified, but he didn't want to be crucified like Christ, so he was crucified upside down, the most excruciating form of death that one could endure. 
And still, he said, this is true. This is true. Okay, these men took this to their grave. And they were willing to die for what they believed happened. And then, I mean, okay, let's look at more superficial evidence. Um, These guys made themselves look really, really, really bad in the Gospels. I mean, Peter, he was an idiot, to tell you the truth. I mean, he was rebuked by Jesus publicly. And this was, this was, I mean, this is all over the, the Gospels. Peter just looked terrible. And then he became the leader of the church. Why would you make yourself look really, really bad if it's a lie and then become the leader of the church? Like, why would you do that? It makes no sense. Uh, so they made themselves look really, really bad. And then um, lastly, I would say that this is a terrible conspiracy if it is, because why would you leave clues to people who actually know the truth? Like, why would you say, why would you name people? eyewitnesses, people that were actually there who were around Jesus and were there in Jerusalem, why, why would you make, why would you leave their names? Why would you leave clues if this was a conspiracy? It's a very terrible t- attempt at a conspiracy. Um, these were terrible conspirators if this is, if this is the truth. Uh, so for me, it's not one thing that tells me that the resurrection was real and that Jesus was God. It is a whole, it's all the evidence in consideration. If it was just one thing, I'd say, oh, that's coincidence. Okay. But for me, I look at the facts and I look at the the scope of the evidence and man, I, I can't deny it. I've had a lot of seasons where I've doubted this stuff. And so I've had to do my research and I've had to look and this stuff makes the most sense to me. I think the people that doubt it the most, uh, and I get why, are people who don't believe, who come with the presupposition that miracles can't happen and that anything miraculous and anything supernatural must be folklore or it must be myth. Uh, and if you come in with that mindset that like nothing could exist outside of the natural, then I could see how you could come to the conclusion that this was false because you don't even believe, you're not even starting from a point where you could believe in this stuff. Uh, and so of course you're going to read into the evidence what you see, uh, which is that it can't be true because it's not natural. It's supernatural. And so I'd say open up yourself to the evidence and see for yourself. Um, Okay, so let me recap Um, the three convictions that are very important. The Bible is authority for life. Jesus loves truth and evidence. And there are great answers for every tough question. So these are things that you've got to build into your students, build into your kids before they go off to college. Uh, And so I'm going to give you two assignments today. All right. Uh, If you're a parent out there and you've got a teenager, this is my assignment to you. Get your questions answered because you are the spring that they drink from right now. You are, your life is, is what they're tapped into. And so I would say you need to get your questions answered. You need to know why you believe what you believe. If your foundation is shaky, then of course you're gonna pass that on to them. Uh, So get your questions answered and know why you believe what you believe, not just because it's tradition or because your parents passed down Christianity to you, but because it's truth and you know that there's evidence for it. 
that's your first assignment. Get your questions answered. The second one is walk through these questions and issues with your child now while they're under your watch. Take some time to ask them questions. Hey, do you really believe this stuff? Uh, ask them the question, hey, why do you think God exists? What's, what's the evidence for God existing? Do you think really Jesus really rose from the dead? What do, you, what do you think about it? Ask them these types of questions because they're under your, uh, your authority right now. They're not off at school. And so they, uh, if there's a time for them to doubt and a time for them to fall and a time for them to have a crisis of faith, let it be now while it's under your watch and not later. And, uh, you know, you guys know the, the popular verse. Um, the, the word of God is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I want us to remember that the Bible is not just about teaching. It's not just about teaching them and giving people good information. It's not just about rebuking or correcting either. It's not just about um, getting people into in in line with what's moral and what's right and what's wrong. It's not about just correcting them. It's also it's also about training them. And I think when you look at teaching, you look at rebuking and correcting, training is is really in a category all by itself because what it what it's talking about is is helping someone be ready for the future, for what's to come, helping someone be ready for battle. And I think that's what we need to do with our kids. We need to train them more. We teach them a lot. We rebuke them a lot. We correct them a a ton. (laughs) But we don't train them very often. And so make your house a training ground for what's to come. Because there's a lot of battles they're going to fight in the future. And if you don't train them now, they're not going to be ready for that fight. And don't leave it up to the church to train them. Don't leave it up to their youth ministry, their youth pastor, or their their pastor to train them. Because honestly, they're going to fail. You need to take it on for yourself and say, I am going to train my child in the ways of God. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you guys. Praying for you. Praying for your families. And we'll see you next time on the Tri-Valley Parenting Podcast.